Amen. Mark chapter 14. Gospel of Mark chapter 14. We're going to start to read at verse 55. Scripture says, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. The trial of Jesus before the Jewish leaders was incredibly emotionally charged because they were determined at any cost to find a way to destroy him. Jesus had challenged them. He had rebuked them. He had exposed them. He had taught the people to follow their teaching, but not their example. So he basically called them hypocrites. The hardness of their hearts, combined with their refusal to consider that this carpenter's son from Nazareth might actually be the Messiah, the one who their nation had been waiting for since it came into existence, would mean that they would completely miss the Savior of the world. Jesus did not fit into the pattern that they had designed in their own minds of what and who their king would be like. Likewise, today we must take great care that we do not try to force Jesus into a mold of our preference and our design. And while we will struggle always to comprehend the complete majesty of God because of how awesome he is, we cannot afford to create a version of God that is palatable with our comforts. In fact, I would suggest this morning that if Jesus doesn't challenge us from time to time, if he doesn't rebuke us from time to time, is he really our God? And in their attempt to condemn Jesus, the Jews tried to bring false witnesses against him. But because the witnesses were false, they couldn't get their story straight. That's a bit of a problem with dishonesty. When you try to create a false narrative, when you tell lies... You make up a story. And if you're going to believe, you want, if you want others to believe that story, you have to continue with more lies to try to give a backstory, to try to give credibility to that lie. And it just becomes an ongoing confusion. It's not scripture, but Sir Walter Scott said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. When you start with one lie, you've got to have another one. And then another one, I think it was Mark Twain that said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. You don't have to worry what you made up if what you said was true. Because you don't have to worry about it being misunderstood. And so we're going to begin a series of lessons this morning on being a true witness. Being a true witness. John chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus speaking said, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear... I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. But there is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not the testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. 
And then speaking of John, verse 35, he says, He was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which my Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him you believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Uh, I know some of us will understand, but if you read this passage, and it seems to suggest that there are two persons talking to one another, are being referred to here when it talks about Jesus and his Father, you need to understand we're talking about God's Spirit and the humanity of Jesus Christ. There are not more than one person in the Godhead. But in this passage, just to bring out a few points, <clears throat> Jesus said, by myself or in my own human ability, I can do nothing. He said, if I am my own witness, or if I'm the only person that's, that tries to endorse who I say I am, how do I have credibility? Look, if you go to court and you're the only person that can back up your story, you may have trouble. You need other witnesses. But Jesus said there is someone else who is a witness of who I am, and I know that his witness is true. He said that John the Baptist was a very powerful witness from God. He was a shining light. And John witnessed of me. He acknowledged who I am, which really should already be enough. That's what Jesus was saying. He said, but I have an even better witness. I have the one who sent me. And then in that, the last part of that passage of Scripture, Jesus points out or refers to three components that give credibility to the witness of God that he was who he said he was. The first one is that the works that he was sent to finish, that he was doing those things. What God sent him to do, he was doing. The second one included the idea of hearing the voice of God. And the third one was of searching the Word of God and having the Word of God in you. And so to consider a parallel for us today, we need the Word of God. We need a relationship with God. He needs to speak to us. And action, service, and demonstration needs to be evident in how we live and in what we do. Amen. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. <clears throat> Some of you can quote this. It says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Amen. The first chapter of Acts along with some of the last chapters of the gospel record the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. They were connected to the idea, if you read it, you'll see it's in the end of Luke's gospel. It talks about waiting for the promise of the Father, and Jesus mentions that again in Acts chapter 1. They're connected to this idea that there was a promise that was coming very, very soon. Jesus said, not many days hence. He said, you wait in Jerusalem, there's a promise that's coming, it's coming soon. And it was quite shortly fulfilled after that in Acts chapter 2. And he said that the fulfilling of this promise, when you receive the promise of the Father, that it would cause believers to receive power and that that power would then be witnessed 
or demonstrated or observable throughout the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. We know that the promise that Jesus spoke of was realized in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them, <clears throat> excuse me, gave them utterance. And to draw a connection between Acts 1 and 8 and Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, it says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And verse 39 says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So between Acts 1 and Acts 2, Jesus said that when you receive this power, its witness would be to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Peter then said that the promise, which was the same thing Jesus had been talking about, which they had been waiting for, was also to all that are afar off. Somebody say, that's me. That's me. You don't get much further off from Jerusalem than Perth, Western Australia at the beginning of 2021. There's a church in Antarctica, maybe, but we're about as far away from Jerusalem. I probably need to check that and make sure I'm not geographically lying, but we're a long, long way from Jerusalem. But the promise is still for us. Amen. And when you read the end of the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they record what we call the Great Commission, it is very clear to us that the power and the promise are wrapped together within the gospel message. That is how it is delivered. That is how it is communicated. That is how it will become experienced. And the gospel message of salvation was the primary purpose of the early church. It is still the primary purpose of the church today. I have no problem with churches being involved in social programs in being able to have compassion on our society and demonstrate that compassion. But when our desire to be compassionate naturally overtakes our desire to preach the gospel, we are out of balance. We become a charity instead of a church. And let me be clear so you don't think I'm being hard-hearted. There's nothing wrong with being charitable. But the church exists for one main purpose, that the gospel would be shared that souls would be saved. Because if we feed their bellies and warm their bodies and they still go to hell, we are failing. Jesus said it is better to enter into heaven maimed than into hell whole. Your physical comfort, as much as this goes against the natural man, your physical comfort in pleasure is nowhere near as important to God as your salvation. That is our purpose. However, when they preached the gospel message, when they preached the gospel message, Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, very end of the gospel of Mark, it says they went forth, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. We need the Lord working with us. And confirming or proving the word with signs following. Amen. We teach this from time to time, but it is very important that we understand that we do not follow signs, but signs are supposed to follow us. Signs follow the gospel, not the other way around. 
Nowhere in the scripture does it say, if you see the miraculous, you will be saved. If Jesus heals your body, you will be saved. If Jesus casts a demon out of you, you will be saved. But those things confirm the gospel message. They are the demonstration or the true witness of the power of the gospel. Amen. If our main focus is on the miraculous, then we risk becoming like some kind of spiritual circus where people go to see tricks. That is not the purpose of the kingdom of God. However, if we are in a relationship with Jesus through the word and we are built upon the word, then we must see the promises that are given in the word of God come to pass. Our message must do what we say it can do or we are not a true witness. That sobers me. That challenges me. Because when we no longer see the promises happening, we need to be very, very careful what is becoming of us. Because if I've said it many times in the past, but if we do not have anything different to what the world has, then why should they come here? Why should they hear the gospel if there is no change, if there is no demonstration of the power of God, what is the purpose? I love coming to church, but I love coming to church because I know God is here. He meets with us. He's working in us and through us. He's, he's washing people's sins away in Jesus' name in the baptistry. He's filling children and adults and older people with the Holy Ghost. People are repenting of their sins. People are being delivered from addiction. We come because the promises are still true. Because the Word of God is still powerful. It's still alive. Amen. And we've got to be careful as the church. We don't get just used to these things happening. If I asked you to stand every single... I'm not going to do it. Please don't do it. If I asked every person who's ever been healed in their body to stand and testify, we'd be here a long time. Let me see a hand if God's ever healed your body. All right. Without counting heads, I can see 30, 40, 50 hands. Easy. Let me see your hand if you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. Keep your hand up if God's provided for you financially, miraculously. That's miraculous stuff. But, you know, we get in the habit of we come to church week in, week out, week in, week out. And we just we kind of forget the miracles that God has done. People need to hear your testimony. They need to hear what God's done for you. You know, there was a testimony that was shared last night. On the conference video, a young couple testified about God healing their daughter. It took place some years back. Still stirred our faith. Still stirred our hearts. Still caused us to rejoice with them at the goodness of God. Your, your miracle, the testimony of your miracle doesn't have a use-by date. You can share it again and again. Hebrews chapter 2. Starting at verse 1 says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. In other words, pay attention to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. That verse tells me they can slip. <laughs> if we're warned to pay attention, that means there's a reason. If it couldn't slip, there wouldn't need to be a warning. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. In other words, there were accurate consequences for doing the wrong thing. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts 
of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. To paraphrase that passage, if in the Old Testament there were severe consequences for transgressions and disobedience, how much more seriously ought we to take our New Testament relationship with God? We, we understand that the New Testament is built on grace, it's built on love, but do not misunderstand that to mean that it is free of consequence. That is a misunderstanding of the Word of God. Read the book of Revelation. It's at the end of the New Testament, not the Old Testament. We have grace. We have mercy. It is a love relationship with God, but we demonstrate love through obedience. That's the scriptural principle. Amen. We have heard it, the writer said, and God has borne witness to it. The things we've heard, God has confirmed them. Signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe God wants to stir us up in the supernatural. I believe society is changing before our eyes in a, in a greater way than we really realize. I believe in a lot of ways we're a little bit sleepy as to what's going on in the world out there. And your opinion and your ability to quote Scripture is not going to cut it. We've got to see the demonstration of the power of God. If you've ever seen any testimonies online from people that have been converted from the Islamic faith to Christianity, and let me be very clear because this is being recorded, I am not being harsh on those people, but when they are converted to Christianity, there is almost always a miraculous demonstration of some sort where God reveals himself to them because their hearts are hungry. Your words alone will not get it done. There must be a demonstration. There must be a true witness. And I'm going to make something very clear in the next few weeks. It is not the responsibility of the ministry. It is the responsibility of the church, the body of Christ. Hallelujah. The greatest and most important miracle that is ever going to happen is the saving of a soul from sin. When you repented from your sin, when you were washed clean by baptism in Jesus' name, the power of the blood of Jesus, you were filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking other tongues, you became a child of God. That is the new birth experience. That's what is spoken about in John 3. That is what is instructed in Acts 2. That is what happened throughout the book of Acts. The epistles underline it. Paul told us in Romans, he said that when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, we are adopted. We become the children of God. Amen. We have been saved from going to hell. You need to think about that for a moment. If you're born again of water and spirit, you have been saved from going to hell. When you think about what that really means, being saved from eternal torment and punishment, that is the greatest miracle. That once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was in the express lane going into an eternity without God, now I'm on a path that leads to heaven and peace and His presence for eternity. So long as we don't neglect this great salvation. There is no greater or more important miracle than that. He can heal your body once a day and you can still go to hell. He can do all the signs and wonders. But if you're not born again of water and spirit, Eternity is at stake. So never take, never, two things, never take your eye off the fact that your eternal destiny is with Him. And secondly, never undervalue salvation. 
we've got to be, you see, there's something about our flesh that we have a way in the natural of getting the spiritual wrong. We're all impressed with miracles. Amen. I love to see God heal somebody. I don't know how many times I've heard Sister Linda stand and testify of how God's healed her body. Raise her hands and worship God because the, earlier that day she couldn't get a hand above her shoulders. I love to hear all that stuff and we get excited about that. But salvation, the salvation of the soul is more important than anything else. And so if God never ever heals your body, if you die of a terrible illness, and I don't wish that upon anybody, but if your life is full of suffering and pain and agony, but you're saved and you have the greatest miracle that is available to anybody because there are people in the scripture that God healed that walked away from him. And there are many people I've known that God has done miraculous things for that have walked away from him. Don't neglect your salvation. It doesn't just say salvation. It says great salvation. Understand that. You have great salvation this morning. Amen. But when Jesus filled you with his spirit, when you became a vessel filled with promise, you were never ever meant to put a lid on it and seal it shut. You're not a spiritual bank vault. You're not a safe. You're not a storage unit. You're a vessel. You're filled with what the Bible calls living water, not stagnant water. Amen. You know, when water doesn't have any movement, after a while that water goes nasty. You know, I walk my dog every morning. My dog will drink out of anything that looks like a puddle. We walk along beside a dirt road and it rains. There are these huge puddles that are the color and consistency of iced coffee and my dog will drink it. I think there is something seriously wrong with that dog. But God has given us living water. It's pure. It's clean. It has eternal life. It is supposed to change us through relationship and it is supposed to impact others through demonstration and witness. If it's not working here, it's not going to work there. And your witness begins, if I can put it this way, with what you say and how you live, but it is confirmed by signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I preached a message a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus builds us from the ground up, about how important our foundation is, and, and, and that's going to be a part of this series as well. We have to be built on the, If the foundation's wrong, the house is a write-off. Let me be very clear. I don't care how much your intentions are unless the Lord builds the house. If you're not on the rock to start with, the house is a waste of time. Get the foundation right. Then build the house. But once we begin, God begins to build our lives as a house. Your house tells a story. And everywhere you go, that house tells a story to other people of what God has done in your life. Your words, your actions, your testimony. Your op- you know, you should never be afraid to pray for somebody on the work, on the job, as long as you've got to be careful you don't get the sack. Don't be afraid to pray for somebody. You know, I get messages and there's nothing wrong with this. So don't take this wrong. Saying, hey, pastor, can we pray for somebody? I will always say, yes, we'll pray for them. But don't handball it to me. Lay hands on them in Jesus' name. Mark 16, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Only if they're the pastor, the assistant pastor or a department leader. It's not what it says. If you're filled with the Spirit. God wants to use you to see signs and wonders. 
Sometimes we're worried about offering because we're embarrassed that God won't do it. Since when are you in charge of the miraculous happening? I prayed for, I've prayed for my boss on more than one job. Did I see a miracle on the spot? No, I didn't. Would I do it again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. Your house tells a story. You know, our natural houses tell stories. Someone comes to your home. If you've got photos, either on a bookshelf or on the wall or somewhere, what do people do? They start looking at your photos. Who's this? I can tell that's your parents. And if you come to my house, you're coming through the front door on the wall in front of you, there's a photo of my family. But to the immediate right in our lounge room, there's a big photo of my wife and I when we were married. The reactions that that photo produces. Everybody says, your wife's hardly changed, but you, man. I tell people, it's my wife's old boyfriend. Even when we had the kids over last week, when we had pizza and Sunday school questions with the kids, they're all saying, well, look at pastor. That picture tells a story. It tells a story that I'm, I was half the man in that picture that I am now. But your house tells a story because when people sort of say, well, who is this? You're say, well, you know, that's so-and-so and that's from, you know, or that picture happened when we were here or we were there or there's a picture of our kids when we were at the, the show or at the beach or at Disneyland or wherever it is. There are stories that your house tells. And those stories are an opportunity for people to get to know you. Your testimony is a story that is an opportunity for people to get to know the God that gave you the testimonies. Your testimonies are like your photos in your house. Every photo stirs a memory. Every testimony is a memory and a witness of what God has done for you. And you need to not be ashamed to tell those stories again and again. You know, it's like when you have kids and, you know, they hear the stories. You know, your kids, your kids get to a certain age. It's not possible when they're little, but they get to a certain age, usually around 12 or 13. They develop the ability for their eyes to roll backwards. You notice that? Never happened before that. But when they hit adolescence, all of a sudden they have this ability to... Uh. And what they're doing is they're expressing their disappointment in you as parents. I heard somebody say the other day that the reason that adolescents give parents a hard time is that it's easy to let them move out because it's, it's easy to cut the string. You can take or leave that, whatever you think. But, but, you know, you tell those stories and the kid's are like, oh, not this story again, not this story again. I worked with Brother Glass for so long when he started preaching, I could tell you every single story he told. I listened to him preach from the time I was a boy to the time he left Perth, and I knew all the stories. But why do we need to hear them again? Because there's something behind the story. You know, if, you, if God's healed you, if God's done a miracle in your life and you come to the house of the Lord and you feel like you should share that again, come see me. Say, Pastor, I'd like to testify. Come see me. Say, I want to, you know, and you say, I, you know, some of you might have heard this before. I just felt the Lord wanted me to share that. You never know who that's going to speak to. Now, if you come ask me every Sunday morning and it's the same testimony, we may have to have a conversation. But your testimony is powerful. It's powerful. You should never get tired of telling the stories of what Jesus did for you. I mean, how long have we been telling the stories in this book? How many times have you heard somebody preach about the prodigal son? How many times have you heard somebody preach about Jesus turning water into wine? Again and again. Why do we need to hear the stories again? Because they tell us what Jesus can do. Amen. So when, Jesus, when, people, when people come to your house, 
to your life, you have that opportunity to tell them your story. Amen. I'm going to be teaching in coming weeks about the gifts of the Spirit, not just the gifts of the Spirit, but the gifts that God gives and what God wants you to do for Him. Jesus was not only the visible of the invisible God, but He brought the power of that which was invisible into the visible realm. And He left us with the same responsibility. When Jesus did the miraculous, you could look at a variety of reasons, but it basically had a twofold purpose. He helped hurting people, had compassion on them, and he attracted the attention of the multitudes in order to teach them the word of God. Jesus cared about people's needs. He cared about their illness. He cared about the ones that were demon-possessed, the lepers, the lame, the blind. He cared about all of them. But his purpose was always eternal impact. In John chapter 2 and verse 1, just some examples, it says this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. That's just not an afterthought. That was part of its purpose. John 3 and 2, speaking of Nicodemus, said, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. The miracles got Nicodemus's attention. Nicodemus wasn't exactly sure where Jesus was doctrinally. Nicodemus knew where he went to Bible school. He didn't know where Jesus went to Bible school. But the supernatural caught Nicodemus' attention. And he, he deliberately organized a meeting with Jesus because there was something he wanted to know more about. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. There came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion. We're going to get into in coming weeks a lot of the reasons about what our motives ought to be. We want to see the power of God in operation. Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, broke the law of Moses, touched the leper and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed and he straightway charged him and forthwith sent him away. And he said unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, get evidence, confirmation of the miracle, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out. He didn't exactly do what Jesus said. He went out and began to publish it. He told everybody, publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter. This is before social media. It's, he, this, he was telling everybody, he was, it says he blazed it abroad. He set fire to his testimony. And everywhere it went, he kindled that fire telling them about what Jesus had done for him. It had such an impact, it says, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city. Everybody wanted to talk to him, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. There's another scripture that's not in my notes that says that they, they tried to keep him hidden in a house one day, but they just couldn't hide him. Everybody wanted to see him. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. And these things Jesus, sorry, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. They followed him because they saw the signs and wonders. Again, it's not about a spiritual circus. It's about what we say is real. It's about the word of God being quick and powerful. What were the results of the miraculous in the early church? Just a couple of examples. Acts 3 and 11, and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, 
All the people ran together under them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. It brought people together. The disciples had a chance to say, Jesus did it. Jesus did it. If you ever want God to use you in the supernatural, you need to be ready to say, Jesus did it. Jesus did it. In the book of Acts, there was a place where Paul and his, his companion, something supernatural happened and the people came and wanted to worship them. And they said, don't you even begin to worship us. This was Jesus did it. Amen. That's the key. Jesus did it. And there will be people, you know, that I think it's in, it's definitely in the Bible. It's just gone blank from my mind as to where it was. But there is the story where Jesus heals the man who was lame from his birth. And he goes into the temple and everybody's like, hey, isn't this the lame man? Well, it looks a bit like him. No, that's him. And then the Pharisees start saying, well, who healed you? And he tells them it was Jesus and they didn't like that very much. So they begin to, you know, argue and debate backwards and forwards. And they brought his parents in and said, is this your son? And they said, yeah, we think so. Looks like him. And they said, well, how did he get healed? And they said, they wanted nothing to do it. You ask him. He's old enough to answer for himself. And this back, they were trying to find a way to discredit Jesus. But it's very hard to discredit somebody when a crippled man is standing in front of you. It's very hard to say he's not real when the man who couldn't walk is walking and praising God and going into the temple. To the point that the, the, the lame man, if you sort of read between the lines, he got a bit frustrated. He said, look, I, I don't know who he was. Do you want to be his disciples? They didn't like that very much. He said, all I know is, you know, there's a blind man, not a lame man. See, I've got the story wrong altogether. It's the man from the pool. Of, this is what happens when you don't put things in your notes. He said, all I know is I was blind. Now I see. What do you say to that? What do you say to that? Amen. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. By the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them. You know why the people wouldn't join them? Because God had just killed Ananias and Sapphira. You're going to come to church. You better take this seriously. That was the message. And believers though, believers were the more added to the Lord. So some were scared and stayed away. Some saw the power of God and came to church. That's always going to be the response. Some will believe, some won't. That's okay. In verse 15, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. That's faith. There came also a multitude out of the cities around about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Amen. What happened? The miraculous happened. People were saved. They heard the word of God. They saw the signs. Amen. There are always going to be some that will reject it, but there's always going to be a hungry heart that God wants to reach. And the power of God through signs and wonders and the gifts of the Holy Ghost should be demonstrated within and without the church. We need to see the gifts of the Spirit in operation more in our midst, not just tongues and interpretation. There's a whole lot more than just those two. But they're not reserved to this building. The anointing that you have as a vessel of the Holy Ghost doesn't turn off as you pass through that door. God wants to use you outside of this place as well. Scripture gives us three, or at least three, groups of gifts that God has given to the church. Well, that's, some of that's what we're going to be focusing on in coming weeks. But we're going to be doing it not just for the purpose of knowledge or understanding, but because God has given each of us gifts. Brother Downs 
ministered about some of this last night in his message from the conference. And I already had this morning's message, so I knew the Lord was wanting to speak to us. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, if God has filled you with the Holy Ghost, there are things that he has put in you that he wants to use that help his kingdom. Now, some of those things are naturally in us, in our personalities and skills and abilities that we have. Sometimes they're things that we don't naturally think we have. But there is not a single person, if, if they are gifts that come through the Spirit, if you've been filled with the Spirit, nobody is filled with the Holy Ghost and gets the giftless version. You don't just get the salvation-only version of the Holy Ghost, where I got the Holy Ghost to be saved, but hey, no gifts. This is how it is, I'm sorry. Everybody, if you're Spirit-filled, every single one of you, has a purpose in the kingdom of God. It may not be visible. Not everything we do is on a platform or the microphone. But everybody has something that God wants to develop, equip, use them for His glory. We're going to talk about how we can find some of that. We're going to talk about what we need to do for that to be effective and some of those things in, current, in weeks to come. Let's stand together this morning.